everyone. Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and a professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. And I'm passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having these sorts of geeky conversations with people about new things. So in this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. This week, I am joined once again with the founder of Israel Bible Center, Dr. Ellie Lezorkin Eisenberg. He has written several courses for IBC, making my choice about what to talk to him about really challenging. But I finally landed on the Jewish Insights into Scripture, Part 1. You may remember last week when Dr. Lee Zorkin Eisenberg and I talked about the puzzling and somewhat awkward texts in the Gospels when people want to follow Jesus, but he tells them they have to hate their own father, mother, wife, children, and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life to be a disciple. Or another time when a man says he'll follow Jesus after he buries his father, but Jesus replied, let the dead bury their own dead. If you missed Dr. Ellie's explanation of these texts, please go back and listen because he also throws in all these really fun little extra bonus material about Hebrew words, which really is why you should subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, or Google Podcasts so you don't miss out on all these little gems. Since we are strangely on the topic of death and burial practices, I thought we should go all in and discuss yet another scene that takes place near a tomb. I'll set the stage for you. In John's gospel, Jesus is killed and buried. Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb only to find it empty. She goes to get Peter and the disciple Jesus loved, which we typically say is John, and they run back to the tomb to find it empty. The guys leave, but Mary stays behind. She sees someone she thinks is the gardener until he says her name, and she realizes that it is Jesus. She goes to embrace Jesus, as seems pretty natural in the circumstances, right? But Jesus won't let her touch him. So listen in now as Dr. Lee Zorkin Eisenberg gives us a possible explanation for why this is so. Jesus essentially rejects Mary. He will invite, eight days later, he will invite Thomas to touch him, to put his hands into his wounds and to touch him. And so so this is where the idea that those who believe uh, according to the Jehovah Witnesses theology uh, doesn't hang together. Okay, because uh, uh, to the best of my knowledge, they believe that Jesus did get resurrected, but only as a, not, in, not in a material way, in a spiritual, in some kind of non-material way. And so, but that doesn't explain why he could be touched, why he invited Thomas not to, to believe and to go ahead and actually, you know, let his hand also pierce his body you know, symbolically and yet physically. So, so there we have uh, Jesus allowing for a man to touch him. And there we have uh, Jesus disallowing a woman to touch him. Okay. Now it's, it's complicated, but I think, I think that one 
potential explanation. And of course, let me let me not be uh, uh, let me make a statement about at least one explanation that's traditional that does make sense, and that uh, it goes to uh, a grammatical argument in uh, in Greek that in Greek it doesn't just mean something like to touch, but it means something like to hold on to me, okay? Hold on to Jesus. And the argument is made uh, that now that Jesus died and rose from the dead, it is not the physical body of Jesus that had to be held on to. Now there is something greater. The Holy Spirit is coming. So is it possible that this is really what's going on? Absolutely, it is possible. Now, having considered that as a possibility, let's move to what I think may be, think, may be happening there. And, the kind of, and I will try to introduce this topic. Remember that uh, in the Jewish law, there is, a, there is idea of something that can be clean and unclean, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, in, in English, we even translate it with the words of clean, it sounds positive, and unclean sounds dirty, sounds negative. But in, um, in Hebraic thinking, in the biblical Hebraic, and even in, in uh, Judaism's, later Judaism's thinking on this topic, there's nothing wrong with unclean. For example, menstruation, uh, that something that without which a human being can be not cannot be brought forth into the world by a woman. Obviously, nobody in Jewish or Christian circle will say there's something wrong, so, something morally wrong with uh, with a menstrual blood. Or you know, we're all grown ups here, or should be uh, in the in the po- podcast world here. Um, or the whole uh, the whole discussion of um, you know of uncleanness of a man after sexual relationship with his wife, for example, he's also unclean. Now, what's what went wrong if he if he had relations with his wife? Nothing. It's commended by God. There is absolutely nothing that went wrong. Why? Because the unclean in in Hebrew thought and Judaism is not a negative concept. Mm-hmm. It's just a concept that, for a particular period of time, limits you in approaching the holiness of God. For the limited time, limits you in distinguishing this space between sacred and common. You know, the word profane basically means common. There's nothing wrong with the word profane. That's the interesting thing. You know, it's just common. It is not fit for the holy. And so um, um, we can can see how how Christian interpreters, uh, well-meaning Christian interpreters, even uh, Jewish studies updated Christian interpreters, would not find themselves at home with these kinds of concepts throughout um, throughout the Bible. Certainly, they will allow for them in the so-called Old Testament. But when it comes to them continuing on, also being in operation, as much as we possibly can see in the New Testament as well, they are many times, in a sense, colorblind on this issue. So, basically, the ideas of uh, purity played not just an outdated, but played a central role 
uh, not only in the Hebrew Bible, the so-called Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. Uh, so, for example, I remember that I mentioned that um, a, a sperm ejaculation uh, renders a man, an Israelite, uh, ceremonially unclean, meaningly limited for the period of time in his approach of the holy place. Now, on the Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, we all know that this is this is this has been taught, I think, by all churches everywhere. Um, that on the Day of Atonement, the high priest, the the Kohen Agadol, the high priest, uh, with uh, with the twelve stones on his chest, representing all the tribes of Israel, would walk in into the Holy of Holies. It was a very, very dangerous job. Some traditions, not the Bible, but the traditions tell, tell us that sometimes the high priest didn't come back live. This is why they had belts on them. This is why they had a rope attached to them. Because when, they, when God would strike them dead, the people out in the holy place would just pull them out from the Holy of Holies. And so if the high priest returned alive, it meant that the sacrifice was received for that year and the great joy could be first announced to the Jews gathered in a, a holy place and then to the Gentiles that are gathered outside also of the in the temple, but outside of the holy place. But it's very important to remember that high priest was a man. And so the Jewish traditions uh, tradition tells us that the high priest was kept the night before the day of service, was kept by a dedicated person who would not let him go to sleep. And the reason for this is so that he will not have a wet dream. Okay? This is exactly what was happening. He was a human being. Uh, he was he was um, he was about to put he was chosen by God from the right lineage. Everything was right, but he was still human. He could have very last moment. He could have disqualified himself from entering the Holy of Holies and performing the duty of a high priest. Now, so the 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 suggestions that I'm the suggestion I'm giving here is that. It's very possible, it's very, very possible that this is exactly what went on here, is that Jesus, as he rose from the dead, he did not yet ascend to the Father. He did not yet enter the, spirit, the heavenly tabernacle by the, the copy of which Moshe, Moses, built on earth. As a way to quickly summarize what's going on, if you're following the argument, this means that Jesus is within the role of the high priest. And when he rose from the dead, he's in a state of purity, but he has not yet gone into God's presence to perform the role of the high priest. As such, he cannot touch anything secular or profane that might make him unfit for standing before the holiness of God the Father. This is not an argument over what is sinful, but an argument over what is sacred. So what about Mary could have disqualified Jesus from entering God's presence? And there, right there, a woman who could have had a period, who may have touched something, she probably walked in into that grave 
She may have touched something in the grave. She could have spoiled, so to speak, the readiness of Jesus. Now, there's two ways to look at this. One is to say, are you kidding me? What kind of idiot can you be with all this education to think that you can take the Holy Son of God and defile him? Well, you can say that if you're a heretic. And what I mean by that is that you don't really, you don't really believe that Jesus came in flesh. Also, that Son of God, God came in flesh. The moment you do, the moment you understand that Jesus is not only God, but he's also a man. And the moment you say he was a man, you have to say, well, he was a Jewish man. He was an ancient Israelite. That meant that all the laws that God has given to the ancient Israelites applied to him as well. And you see, that, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, and the second, of course, uh, um, reaction you can have is to say, well, that's interesting. I'll think about this. That's possible. It's kind of new. I'm not sure it ha- kind of hangs together all the way, but that's possible. I'll give it a thought. And um, I want to give you a, a, another, another insight there that has to do with that particular event that may help you to see how important those kinds of touchings of the dead really were for the uh, New Testament main characters. Remember that when Peter and the beloved disciple probably read John, son of Zebedee, are running to the grave of Jesus when they heard the good news. They are running. And what happened, this is the most important thing, is that what happened is that beloved disciple, whoever he was, he stopped right in front of the uh, uh, of the entrance to the to the grave where that first burial f- first degree <laughs> burial of Jesus already took place he stopped why did he stop this is interesting and why did peter did not well one explanation could be well peter just he doesn't care you know peter is just <laughs> this his you know he's peter you know he's yeah. peter but I don't think so. I, I don't think that's the case. I think mm, there is a there is an article that was published in something like 60s in Oxford. It's an article <clears throat> that argues uh, that that beloved disciple was, I think, John of Zebedee, if I recall this correctly, and that he was a Levite. And the reason he stopped there is because that was on the, the, this was instinctive for him all of his life he was taught not to come close to the to the to the to the place of the dead of the place of burial he needed to keep his um there are different laws in the torah for different kinds of people different laws for the women there's different laws for kings different laws for there's variety of people everyone's got a law there's one Torah, but different laws for all kinds of all kinds of sections of to whom the the Torah is applicable to, and so uh, and so Levites got their own set of sections, and then the priests, those of the Levites that are priests, not all of them are priests, but the, they have their own set of sections of the of the laws, and so in this hypothesis, if John was really a Levite, which 
Best I remember reading that article, it was so convincing. But I can't recall exactly how he pieces it together. And so that shows you that for a common Jew like Peter, it was not a problem to run in. He was not a Levite. But for a Levite, it was a, a, for a beloved disciple, by the way. If the beloved disciple is the, the person who wrote John's gospel, uh, which he, he claims he is, it makes sense because John's gospel is obviously written by someone who was extraordinarily familiar with the priestly duties and the priestly settings and the, the, the priestly, even prophetic books, because whole John's gospel is written against the backdrop of the prophecy of the, of the Ezekiel. And so all the temple imagery there, and there is water all over John's gospel. There's so much of interesting things to talk about there. Um, but so those are the things I would say that argue for us to view that something else may have been at, at play when Jesus didn't allow the woman that he wanted to hug very much and to comfort her, he didn't, he didn't hug her. He said, do not touch me. I am yet to go up to my father and minister. So I, I'm, saying, I'm saying that it's very possible. I'm not sure of it, but it's very possible that that's the kind of thing that is happening there. So by the time Jesus appears to the disciples and Thomas is there, the idea is Jesus in his purified state has already been before his father so that when he comes back... That's a possible explanation. Again, you know, um, in um, when we're dealing with the reconstruction of history, and I, I hate to say it, but that's what we're dealing with when we're interpreting the Bible. The Bible is like a, a puzzle box with when you go to your grandmother's attic and you find the old puzzle box that you always played with childhood 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and you go like, oh my gosh, I'm going to put together this puzzle that I, that I did so many times before, and you're excited, and you begin to put it together only to realize half of it is gone. <laughs> and you can only make sense because you actually remember, and you can, and you can see, oh, this is, this is this, and this is the wolf, and this is, what's the name, Red Red uh, Riding Hood. Riding Hood. Yeah. Riding Hood. And so, so you can guess some things based on the kind of things in the puzzle that's still intact. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the task of Bible interpretation. We do not have all the facts. We do yeah. not. We have an infallible word of God, that's for sure. But because we're fallible and because we live far away and we, because we live in by far removed time, uh, there are so many situations because our heads are full of theology that we sometimes don't know where we got this from, uh, that, that there are so many different things that could go wrong. So we must be very careful we must be tentative, and we must say that in reconstruction of history, we can be uh, we, we can be plausible. Uh, we can be possible and plausible. Now, some people listening to this will say, "This is what I really think about all of you scholars. You're so full of it. You've studied and studied and studied and studied, and all you come is to nothing." I cannot be sure about anything now what you said. No, that's not what I said. But what I said is that you should have humility. Mm. And that 
Those who interpret the Bible should have more humility. And, it, and they should have honesty. Yeah. And those who interpret the Bible should have more honesty. And, and you cannot be humble and, and honest if you do not acknowledge that there's different inter- interpretive options. <laughs> that it could be that you're trying to fit your theory into the facts right. and not the other way around. Mm-hmm. That could all, we were always, always, always in danger of that. And so therefore, um, by the way, you'll find this at Israel Bible Center is that we prefer clarity to agreement. We, we, we encourage disagreement. If you can argue your case, interact with us through the comments and say, listen, you're missing out something here. We will find your comment. We will most likely comment back in a reasonably short time. So this is an interactive experience. It's not only that you will be able to, to listen to, to, your, to the courses and to roundtable talks that we have with other famous scholars, um, but, but it's not only that you'll be able to listen on your own time, whether you're doing walking in the park or doing the gym or doing the dishes or doing whatever it is that you're doing, not only it's on your time, not only it's on demand, on demand, but it's also interactive. When you have time, and at the point that you want to, you make a comment, and we will review it, and we will give a feedback. When you listen to him, can't you tell that he's the founder of IBC? He is rightfully proud of the collection of courses available for you to explore. Just follow the link in the episode notes and find out how you can get this course or part two of this course. And rumors are that there will be a part three, but shh, don't tell anyone I told you that. And many other courses with one small monthly subscription. And as a thank you for listening to this podcast, use the coupon code Israel when you register and you'll receive a free surprise. Join us next week as we journey into Samaritan territory and explore the background and politics of Jesus interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well. Thanks to Jeremy McDonald with Mason Jar Music for mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. He does such a tremendous job, and I would encourage you to go listen to Mason Jar Music. It's really fantastic. And thank you for being curious about the world of the Bible. I'll see you next week. Thank you.